Welcome, everyone, to the Betsy and Wally Stern Conference Center at Hudson Institute. I'm John Walters, Hudson CEO and President. Um, it's important to the work of Hudson on policy analysis to have leaders of the country share insights and views on key policy matters. Uh, we learn from them. We learn what we can do to help. This is a practice that has a long legacy at Hudson, going back to Ronald Reagan and before, and has included Senator John McCain, more recently Senator Cotton, Senator Joni Ernst. Uh, today, uh, Senator Dan Sullivan, who is a former colleague of mine in the George W. Bush administration, and has been a friend of the Institute. Um, among the other areas of policies he has shaped in, with the environment and many other uh, programs is the um, uh, policy and thoughtful leadership he's given to uh, the Chinese Communist Party threat to Taiwan. We are grateful for his leadership in this area as well as others, and we look forward to his remarks today. Miles Yu, our senior fellow and director of Hudson's China Center, will introduce Senator Sullivan, but I want to also personally thank him for being with us and for his many, uh, many, many uh, acts of service to the country and to our and to the people of America. So thank you for being with us, Senator. Miles. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, uh, President Waters. Uh, my name is Miles Yu. I'm a senior fellow and I'm the director of the China Center here at Hassan. Uh, uh, before we um, we uh, we start. Uh, I have a, a, just a, a few uh, housekeeping matters. First of all, this is a live stream uh, event, so please uh, mute your electronic devices, right? And also, um, uh, the senator will speak for about 35 40 minutes, and before we go to the uh, Q and A, um, and uh, to save time, um, please write down your questions um, uh, uh, beforehand, um, and then follow the instruction over there and uh, send it to us. And I will read, not screen, your questions. Okay. And then if you're uh, from uh, uh, Code Pink uh, or other organizations, please uh, re uh, just be, keep in mind that uh, we encourage a civilized uh, exchange. So uh, we here at Hassan, we also have, uh, you have pink code, we have uh, code pink, we have a code red, uh, prohibiting disruptive um, behaviors. So uh, and, um, we, um, uh, I was supposed to introduce uh, Senator um, Sullivan uh, by telling you uh, his uh, career, but then I look at the, his career is very illustrious, too long. So uh, well, what we've done is we print his uh, detailed bio um, in your seat, uh, so you can have uh, reference there. And I'm just going to highlight a few things that uh, about uh, Senator Sullivan. He is from uh, Alaska, the AK, not A-L-A-R-O-A-Z. Uh, Alaska is a frontier state. Frontier state means, is not necessarily, uh, means a lot of bears or salmon. Um, uh, uh, there's a reason why uh, our enemy uh, fly balloons. Um, and first enter Alaska, because that's a frontier uh, area of our national defense. Um, so um, um, if China shoots an ICBM um, to destroy America, all the ICBM will have to fly over Alaska. So our, uh, Alaska is the frontier um, of our uh, national defense. Uh, but this is not just about China and, and, and America, because uh, the China threat is global. And, uh, the uh, standing at the crossroads 
of that epic struggle between freedom and tyranny is Taiwan. So uh, uh, there's a, uh, no person better qualified to talk about issue than uh, Senator Sullivan. Sullivan uh, is uh, the eighth senator from Alaska, and he uh, has been a successful lawyer, um, government uh, administrator, and he, um, but most impressively, he is also a professional soldier. Uh, he is the only senator still serving in the U.S. military today. He is uh, an officer, Colonel Sullivan, in the U.S. Marine Corps Reserve. So uh, he knows the, the, uh, the, uh, the playbook of a war. He knows the uh, importance um, and the grave nature of this struggle between freedom and tyranny. So ladies and gentlemen, please uh, welcome Senator Dan Sullivan of Alaska. Okay, good morning, everybody, and thank you for that kind introduction. And John, great to see you. Thank you for your tremendous leadership. Um, I think some of you know Walter Lohman. Where's Walter? Who's doing a great job for me. So um, I have a really wonderful team. But I can't thank uh, Hudson enough. Um, all the great work that you do, informing um, uh policymakers coming up with your own policies that help us. It's just, trust me, it is tremendous. It is needed now more than ever. So I really want to thank you. I know that you're, um, um, you're, you're new fellows and people who are associated with Hudson. It's an it's a embarrassment of riches. Like John, um, many of us have served together. I was looking at it. Mike Pompeo, H.R. McMaster, Elaine Chow, uh, your former president, Ken Weinstein. I mean, it is a great group. So continue that fantastic work. And um, it really has an impact on so many of us. We need it now more than ever. So thank you very much for that. Uh, Miles, I appreciate the introduction, but also the reference to Alaska, right? We are. Billy Mitchell, the father of the U.S. Air Force, called Alaska the most strategic place in the world. And you are absolutely correct. Any threat to America, ICBM, uh, hypersonics, cruise missiles that are targeting Chicago or New York, they're all going to come over my state. And we're going to shoot them down <laughs> and retaliate. Um, but that's a whole other topic. Um, but so thank you for that. I think the last several weeks have just... Um, highlighted in people's minds the uh, strategic importance of the great state of Alaska that I'm honored to serve as their senator. So I'm going to um, go through a speech that I've been trying to give all over the place. And you have it right here. So hopefully, do you have this? OK. So you have the little, the little handout. It's essentially the speech. You can use it. Take a look. We're going to have some slides up. I'm going to try and get it through, get through it fairly quickly. But um, to save some time from Q&A, because um, one thing I like about the Q&A is that I and my team, we learn a lot, too. So this is a conversation. But this, the focus of my speech is the um, intensifying threat to Taiwan by the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping. And one thing I always like to do when I start uh, this speech is I try to make it clear that today we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping, not the Chinese people, 
who in my view in many ways are themselves oppressed. And so I think that's very important. You know, it shouldn't be just China. It's the Chinese Communist Party, the PLA, Xi Jinping, and um, what we, the threat, and what we should try to do about it. And I think it's one of the most important issues facing our nation and literally the world. So some of you uh, may have heard of this uh, exchange that I had with then Indo-PACOM Commander Phil Davidson in March of 2021. It was an Armed Services Committee hearing. And I asked the question, hey, when do you think Xi Jinping and the PLA are going to make the move on Taiwan? Um, you might remember uh, it made news all over the world because he was pretty adamant that this was a threat that wasn't very far away, but was pretty darn close. He said, I think the threat of an invasion of Taiwan is manifest during this decade. In fact, within the next six years. That's Indo-PACOM. That was two years ago. That's serious business. His uh, current um, successor, Admiral Aquilino, uh, who's doing a great job. When I'm in my Marine Corps capacity, I'm the chief of staff on the reserve side for Marine Forces Pacific Command. So Admiral Aquilino is like seven levels above me when I go out there. But he's doing a fantastic job. And he has agreed with that assessment. And as a matter of fact, many in the Biden administration have also agreed. The Secretary of State, Secretary Austin. Um, so it's a threat right now. And um, as we saw last fall, in the annual meetings of China's rubber stamp legislature, Xi Jinping emerged as the ultimate supreme leader, surprising the assessment of even seasoned China hands with his audacity. He's packed the Politburo Standing Committee, where, as you know, the real power resides, with loyalists, party stalwarts, with the focus on military, intelligence, and technology backgrounds. Now, Let's face it, that slide looks ridiculous, okay? A bunch of old men in fatigues. But that slide is saying something. That came out right after the uh, uh, party congress. And I think it's this message. China is preparing for war. And we need to take that threat very seriously. So as I said, I'd like to lay out today essentially this threat and what we should be doing about it. Of course, I know that our eyes are on Ukraine, something that I believe we should stay focused on, and that these threats are actually very interrelated. But to me, this is a paramount threat right now. But I'd like to begin my remarks by focusing on a different era in a different region of the world. It's a very famous photo. I think many of you know what it's from. That's in 1948, when the Soviets cut West Berlin off from food and fuel. The United States and our allies, led by a powerful American military, responded with the Berlin Airlift. Our allies flew round-the-clock flights, at one point literally landing one of these aircraft a minute for a year to save Berlin. Think about that. American, Americans rallied our military and other institutional institutions of government 
And at home, even our citizens who were very war weary, three years after World War II, somehow understood that the stakes in Berlin mattered. Americans now look back on the Berlin airlift as a point of pride for our freedom-loving nation. Years later, after the Berlin airlift, President Kennedy came into office, initially viewing the defense of Berlin as an irritant in U.S.-Soviet relations. But following his visit there, where he famously declared himself a Berliner, he recognized Berlin, quote, as an asset, not a liability, in the wider struggle for Europe and global freedom. The United States defended the city and people of West Berlin during the 20th century because we, as a people, understood that this city and its citizens stood on the front lines of the struggle between the American-led free world and a powerful expansionist authoritarian regime. The same is true for Taiwan. Taiwan is the 21st century's West Berlin. Now, it's not as if American political leaders have disregarded the importance of Taiwan. To the contrary, um, I've recently reread re President Eisenhower's outstanding memoirs. Um, if you look at these memoirs and read them, Taiwan and its defense and its importance is weaved throughout the 1950s during the Eisenhower administration. And of course, it's not just been the executive branch. You look at what the Congress has done during the darkest time for Taiwan, when the US switched diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing, it was congressional leaders, bipartisan, by the way, like Senators Barry Goldwater and Bob Dole, as well as Democrats like Representative Lester Wolf, who worked to establish the Taiwan Relations Act. The Taiwan Relations Act is literally one of the most re remarkable pieces of foreign policy legislation in American history. Think about it. A president of the United States, Jimmy Carter, wanted to abandon a longstanding ally, Taiwan. And Congress said, no. We used our constitutional authorities and said, no. And in the process, we, the Congress, when it was passed by 84 US senators, including a young senator named Joe Biden, who voted yes, laid down the Taiwan Relations Act, which among other things com committed Congress and the United States to consider any use of force against Taiwan a threat to peace and security and grave concern to the United States. That's in statute. Congress declared that the US decision to switch diplomatic relations from Taipei to Beijing rested on the expectation that Taiwan's future would be determined by peaceful means. And Congress committed in the Taiwan Relations Act to, to provide Taiwan the means to defend itself and for the US to maintain its own capacity to help. So we collectively, as a government, have been very focused on Taiwan, executive branch, legislative branch, and of course, given this history, it's not surprising that the fate of Taiwan has been weaved in and out of the personal histories of thousands, if not tens of thousands, of Americans, including my own personal history. 
27 years ago, I was a young Marine on that good-looking ship, the USS Bella Wood. I was a young infantry officer, and this was during what is now referred to as the third Taiwan Strait crisis, 1995 and 96, the last time the Chinese Communist Party seriously threatened Taiwan. They moved the PLA up to the strait. They started shooting missiles over the island, all on the eve of uh, Taiwan's first presidential election. President Clinton, to his credit, sent two carrier strike groups and a Marine Amphibious Ready Group. And I was part of that. That was actually the ship that went through the Taiwan Strait at the height of that crisis. And um, that demonstration of American power and resolve was very important and still remembered in the region today. Our commitment to a partner in the region saying, you're not going to do this, Chinese Communist Party. Many years later, on a CODAL that I went on with Senator McCain when I first became a U.S. Senator, and I missed John McCain. He was a great mentor of mine. We were in a meeting with the new president, President Tsai Ing-wen, and she was asking each senator, have you ever been to Taiwan? And she got to me and she said, Senator Sullivan, you ever been to Taiwan? And I was like, hmm. Um, well, yes, Madam President, I have been to Taiwan. I've just never been to Taiwan on land. So um, this, as I mentioned, uh, is part of so many Americans' personal history. Another personal moment in my uh, experience with Taiwan, another demonstration of commitment of the United States was uh, about a year and a half ago at the height of the pandemic when the Chinese Communist Party was struggling Taiwan from the ability to get Western vaccines. I led a CODEL with Senator Duckworth and Senator Coons coordinating with the White House to deliver almost a million Western vaccines. We flew in that C-17, which uh, irritated the heck out of the Chinese Communist Party, so that was probably a good thing. But that was another demonstration of our commitment, America showing up, saying, we have vaccines for you, Taiwan. Don't worry. We know the Chinese Communist Party is trying to choke that off. So let me just give you kind of a, a final, very moving moment in my career. Like I said on that first um, CODEL, I went to Taiwan uh, with Senator McCain and a few other senators. When we landed, a State Department official who was working at the American Institute in Taiwan got on the bus as we were going to meet with the president. And I'll never forget his welcome. He said, welcome to Taiwan, a vibrant democracy of 24 million people with one of the most innovative economies in the world, a hub of trade and cutting edge technology. And the only reason this place continues to exist on the map as such is because of the sacrifice and commitment of the United States of America, our people, our military, our government, to its survival. All Americans should be very proud of this. That's how I was greeted on that bus. And I like repeating that because most Americans don't know. Like, if it weren't for us, that island would have been gobbled up long, long, long time ago. Just look at the history. That's not, that's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. So, as I mentioned, American commitment and resolve on Taiwan 
has been part of our law, heritage, trade, economics, and military deployments for decades. But too few Americans actually know this history. We need to rebuild this understanding and be ready ourselves for the test of wills that I believe is approaching. And this starts with the better job of explaining to the American people collectively why Taiwan matters. That's why we're getting this speech out. That's why I'm giving this everywhere, the Senate floor, think tanks in Washington, D.C. I've been doing this, and I've been actually asking, and I've asked, and a lot of this speech is based on the material I've received. Many of our intel agencies, our think tanks, our combatant commands, this very simple question. What would the world look like in the aftermath of a successful invasion of Taiwan by the CCP. Okay, now, this is actually very little studied. You'd be surprised. I was surprised. There was very little studied. I tasked all these agencies, hey, help me think through what does it look like? What does the world look like? How are America's interests impacted? How are the interests of our allies impacted? And I think it's little studied because, let's face it, it's a very depressing assignment to think about a scenario, and I don't go into it here, one of three scenarios. The Chinese Communist Party launches an invasion, and we don't do anything. We let Taiwan fight alone, and they lose. Or we show up, but too late, we, the United States, and our military and our allies. Or we show up on time and have a big battle in the Taiwan Strait and lose. So what I am trying to do in these remarks today is paint that picture. Not how it happens, but in the aftermath, what the world would look like. And of course, it is not a world that is favorable to the interests of Americans, the West, or those of our allies. Let me go through a couple of the main reasons why. This is information that's a lot of it's pretty obvious, but that I got back from all these different groups to explain why Taiwan matters. The first is that, a, and by the way, if there's going to be a war in the Taiwan Strait, we know it's going to be launched by one entity, Xi Jinping, the Chinese Communist Party, and the PLA, period. No one else is looking to launch a war. So this would be an aggressive action from the entities that I just mentioned. And the number one issue in terms of, um, well, not the number one issue, but one of the key issues is the um, blow to the U.S. global economy. A successful PLA invasion and takeover of Taiwan would be a massive blow to the commanding heights of the technology that powers our digital age. We all know Taiwan dominates the production of the world's most advanced semiconductors. In fact, Taiwan is home to 92% of the most advanced semiconductor production in the world. Imagine what would happen if that was not only taken offline, but controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. You know, if you look at the the impact of the current chip shortage that started with the pandemic. These were the low kind of tech chips. The Commerce Department estimated alone that the U.S. economy suffered 
damage of about $240 billion just from this lower chip shortage that we're seeing with regard to automotive production, trucks, and other things. Imagine what that would do with regard to the U.S. and global economy if the most advanced chips in the world were not only taken offline, but possibly in the control of one of our biggest adversaries. The State Department recently came out with an assessment that they thought the number would be about $2.5 trillion. You want to talk about an impact? You want to talk about an impact to jobs? You want to talk about an impact? And think about our national security. So many of our weapon systems, F-35s, radars, advanced missile defense capabilities, rely on these chips. Think about the threat to U.S. national security if the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping controlled them. Huge challenge. Let me give you another area of undermining American strategic interests and those of our allies. Taiwan's geostrategic value, if it was invaded and occupied by the Chinese Communist Party, would be shattered. You saw, uh, when you saw President, in President Eisenhower's memoirs, he devotes pages and pages to this. At one point, he says, if the capture of Taiwan's offshore islands should in fact lead to the loss of Taiwan, the future security of Japan, the Philippines, Thailand, Vietnam, and even Okinawa would be placed in jeopardy, and the United States' vital interests would suffer severely. Last year, Assistant Secretary of Defense for Indo-PACOM Security Affairs, Eli Ratner, who hopefully has come to Hudson to speak. If you haven't had him, he, he's doing a great job, in my view. Made essentially the same point as President Eisenhower in his memoirs. Critics rung him up for it, apparently calling Taiwan, quote, a critical node within the first island chain and an anchor of net, our network of U.S. allies and partners in the region risks offending Beijing's sensibilities. But of course, Assistant Secretary Ratner and President Eisenhower were correct. Taiwan in the CCP's hands breaks China out of the constraints of the first island chain. And you're all familiar, familiar with that. A line running from Japan through Taiwan in the Philippines to the Straits of Malacca. And a, and a successful Taiwan invasion, uh, invasion of Taiwan has the potential to push the U.S. further into the Pacific to what's called the second island chain. This includes American territories in Guam and the northern Mariana, Mariana Islands. And these just aren't some points on a strategist's map. Residents in Guam and the Marianas are American citizens. They send representatives to Congress. Guam has an enormous U.S. military presence with tens of thousands of U.S. service members and their families. With the first island chain broken, these Americans will come under direct threat from an emboldened China with a massive and growing military. And here's the thing. And some of the reports I got back indicate this. It is highly unlikely if the CCP 
invades and conquers Taiwan, that it will stop there. If history teaches us anything, it is that the appetite of an aggressive authoritarian regime on the march increases with each meal. For decades, the CCP and PLA have focused almost exclusively on building a military with the objectives of conquering Taiwan. Take a look at the next slide. This is the military balance that Taiwan is facing across the strait. I won't go into what each symbol means, but it's not a very, um, it's not a very positive balance of forces. But here's the thing. Again, as I said, the Chinese military has been focused on Taiwan. With a successful invasion of Taiwan, it is very unlikely that that massive force stays put. There will be pressure and opportunities from the Chinese Communist Party and the PLA and Xi Jinping to push that very massive force out into other regions of the world. Already the PLA Navy has a base in Djibouti and is scouting out locations for other naval bases all over the world, from Africa to South Asia. According to the 2023 DOD China Military Power Report, released a few weeks ago, some 17 countries are now under, considerations, uh, under consideration for the PLA's military basing and logistic facilities. Let me give you another area of our interest that I think would be negatively impacted as President Eisenhower stated in his memoirs. He was deeply concerned about the impact a successful invasion of Taiwan would have on American alliances in the region and our ability to credibly meet our defense treaty obligation to our treaty allies. That concern continues today. Whether it's Japan, who is doing a great job with regard to building up their military, or South Korea, or even Australia, it's of course hard to predict the future, but there's little doubt that a Chinese Communist Party taker of, tai of Taiwan would call into question American alliance commitments by our treaty allies. It could cause some of them to build up their own military capabilities, including nuclear deterrence, or choose a more accommodating Middle Kingdom posture toward their powerful, aggressive neighbor. Either way, this should concern all Americans. The questioning of our Pacific network of alliances that has undermined the security of the American homeland by balancing and deterring dangers from far from our shores would certainly make the United States less, less safe. Finally, let me just make one final point on our interest. A Chinese Communist Party takeover of Taiwan would give a global boost to the CCP's model of authoritarian governance that Xi Jinping has been offering the world. In the 1930s, during a time of global upheaval, of which there are striking parallels today, many around the world thought that the future lay with fascism. Such a future was alluring to millions. Democracy can be messy. It's still messy. Disagreements, sometimes ferocious disagreements, is the hallmark of representative government. And because of the transparency inherent in the democratic 
process of our governments, it's there for all the world to see, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The United States, along with other democracies around the world, ultimately prevailed against the rise of fascism during World War II. We did so by the force of arms, but also by the appeal to the university and immutable desire for freedom and self-governance. But a military takeover of Taiwan in the current global climate by the CCP could lead many to believe that as Xi Jinping himself has put it, the CCP's totalitarian vision of a new choice for humanity, one that relies on techno-authoritarian control rather than self-government, is on the march around the world. We cannot be blind to those implications or the extraordinary new legitimacy the CCP would gain at home and abroad. And with that would come new forms of Chinese Communist Party aggression, not just in the region, but throughout the world. So the next slide I have, I took from a slide deck during my Marine Corps duty out at Indopaycom. By the way, it's unclassified, so don't worry. But that is a good summary of the issues that we just talked about. What China would gain, what we would lose in the event of a successful military invasion by the CCP. It's in your, it's in your uh, pamphlet here, so I won't go through it, but take a look. These, this is a good summary of why Taiwan matters. So my purpose today was to paint a picture of what the U.S. and the world would look like in the aftermath of a violent CCP takeover of Taiwan. However, I do not want to just end the presentation here. As you can see, it's a world that none of us or our allies would want. And certainly, the 24 million people on the island, democ uh, the island democracy of Taiwan don't want it either. And as I mentioned, to be clear, this, is, this would be an event fully launched by Xi Jinping and his buddies wearing those fatigues. So what should we be doing about it? Well, obviously, none of us want this. So I believe enhancing deterrence should be the top priority for US policy. And I've often talked about deterrence being established in Taiwan in three levels. The first, of course, is making sure Taiwan has the capability to defend itself. As laid out in American law in the Taiwan Relations Act, and that they are acquiring the weapons they need, as well as advancing overall military readiness. The ability to have the weapons to defend themselves, as we are seeing in Ukraine, with an ins inspiring example of heroic resistance against Russia, is a critical element of this first level of deterrence. We made some significant progress in this direction during last year's National Defense Authorization Act. But I will say, unfortunately, the Biden administration did not step up with the appropriators the way they needed to. And so the most critical elements of the package that we had in the NDAA remains unfunded. For as much as we seem to be on the same page, Congress and the administration with regard to Taiwan's security, the administration, in my view, is still not getting the support 
and information we need in the Congress to meet Taiwan's military and defense needs. The second level of deterrence, of course, is what we've been talking about, would be America, America's response in those of our allies. As I've already mentioned, for decades, that has been the key level of deterrence that has prevented and dissuaded the Chinese Communist Party from invading Taiwan. But this certainly should not be taken for granted either. For two years in a row now, the Biden administration has put forward defense budgets that are inflation-adjusted cuts to our defense. Now, we in the Congress dramatically reject that, by the way, in a bipartisan way, and significantly increase the president's budget. I've been told by a senior administration official that they do that to appease the left, who hate, and the progressives, who hate big defense budgets, knowing that we will bolster it. By the way, that is the opposite of leadership, if that's true. So the current budget shrinks the Navy. The current budget shrinks the Marine Corps. The current budget shrinks the Army. Okay? We're not going to let that happen in the Congress, even though the Republicans are in the minority. But who is emboldened by that kind of budgetary, military posture? Of course, Xi Jinping and Putin. So that's the second level, and we can't take that for granted. But I want to just mention the third level of deterrence, which is rarely discussed. But when you read the reporting, it might be the most important level of deterrence maybe even more powerful than the first and second levels. And that is employing all instruments of American power beyond our military with regard to our economic, trade, financial, and in particular, energy strengths that we have as a country and lay out a package of sanctions now, preemptive sanctions to say the, to the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping, if you invade, Here's what your economy's gonna get. Here's what your people are gonna get. This is why I introduce what's called the Stand with Taiwan Act. This is a very powerful package of sanctions that would be triggered by a military invasion of Taiwan. I think one of the things that we've learned from the brutal invasion of Ukraine by Russia is that comprehensive economic and financial sanctions have the best chance of deterring a conflict when they are clearly defined and ready to go before the conflict begins. So I have been working with my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to get this passed. And not only that, on CODELs all around the world, in Germany, at Munich, in Brussels, in London, in Korea, in Japan, I've been pitching our allies to do the same. Could you imagine if all of our key allies had similar legislation to that? 60 to 70% of the world's GDP saying to Xi Jinping, if you do it, here's what you're going to get. I think, and many others, including some in our Intel services believe that could have a huge deterrent effect 
on a Chinese military invasion of Taiwan. So let me conclude with this. With the invasion of Ukraine, it is clear we have entered a new era of authoritarian aggression led by Putin and Xi Jinping, like we saw in the 1930s. For nearly a century, American presidents of both parties have seen Asia and Europe's theaters, which if under hostile control, would put US national security interests at extreme risk. Generations of Americans have fought and died so that East Asia and Europe would not fall under the dictatorial control of US adversaries. Both of these theaters are at risk today. The free world cannot be neutral in this contest between freedom and authoritarianism, especially in the Indo-Pacific region. American allies, power, and ingenuity helped build a world that provided more freedom and prosperity to more people than ever before. In fact, the United States and our democracy, bolstered by a strong military, has done more to liberate humankind from oppression and tyranny, literally hundreds of millions of people, than any other force in human history. We Americans don't realize that sometimes, and we should take pride in that. The Chinese Communist Party has clear plans to reverse all of this. It knows exactly what it wants to accomplish, to make the world safe for its tyrannical government, to profit off the export of its authoritarian model to other countries, to separate America from our democratic allies, and to erode US leadership in the region. A world governed by Xi Jinping's totalitarian vision would be a world unsafe for America and our friends. And that's why Taiwan is so central to the future of the free world, like Berlin last century. It is a thriving, prosperous Chinese democracy that holds free elections with power bounded by the rule of law. For that reason, it threatens the CCP's central premise that one man ruling in perpetuity by crushing all dissent knows what, it's best, what, what is best for 1.4 billion people. The Chinese Communist Party has already crushed Hong Kong, once a bastion of liberty, and the free world barely raised a voice in protest. Should America and the world stand by as China does something to Taiwan, a peaceful democracy of 24 million people, that would not simply undermine the security of the Western Pacific region, as the Taiwan Relations Act says, but would undermine America's role in the world and the values we, as Americans, have infused in it. And it would deeply and adversely affect concrete American national security and economic interests. So I want to thank all of you again, Miles, John, the Hudson Institute, who believe in peace through strength. This is a critical issue. I'm very honored that you allowed me and my team to present on what I think is probably the most important national security issue facing our nation and those of our allies. We need to make sure more Americans understand why Taiwan matters. Thank you very much. 
ask uh, uh, just lead uh, by two uh, questions. One's an easy one, another one's a tougher one. Mm -hmm. Easy one is uh, uh, did the Chinese uh, spy balloon flew over uh, Fort Greeley uh, in Alaska? So I was I was tracking this uh, quite closely. By the way, our you know I want I want to give an example of the U.S. military. In Alaska, there you know, there's a lot of talk about a woke military, and, and of course, I don't believe in that. Um, there's problems with regard to the Biden civilian leadership. Some of our uniform military leadership has kind of fallen to that temptation. I'm not sure why, but I will tell you, the average soldier, Marine, sailor, airman, Coast Guardman, Guardian, they're warriors, right? We should be proud of them. In Alaska. Our 11th Air Force tracked that first spy balloon from far away. We went up and intercepted it with our F-35s and F-22s. By the way, in Alaska, we have over 105th Gen fighters, F-22s and F-35s, stationed in Alaska. No place on the planet Earth has a, more than 100 supersonic stealth fighters like we do. We tracked it. Northcom, our Alaska commanders requested permission to shoot it down was denied. I'm not sure that's public, but it's a fact. And um, it floated over the Aleutian Islands, then came back through central Alaska. It was probably, I'm almost positive, it was north of Fort Greeley, where we have our ground-based missile interceptors that protect the whole country. And I believe it was north of some of our radar systems that also protect the whole country in terms of missile defense, again, because we're so important. But just very quickly, because I like to brag about our military. In addition to that, the young men and women in Alaska's military tracked uh, several, and it wasn't just a couple, several of these smaller balloons that were coming in over the, around the same time. So the Biden administration has been not truthful on that issue. I know this is a fact as well. Frustrating, because I've been trying to get them to be truthful to the American people. We scrambled and intercept, tried to intercept those. We shot down two of those. We then launched a very uh, difficult recovery mission to go find them in 55 below zero, all dark, flying on NVGs, helicopters, C-130s. Then the Russians decided to probe us. And we had two different bear bomber swarties with fighters that came into our ADIS in Alaska. We went up and intercepted those guys, turned them away, go back to Russia, all within three weeks. These are really tough missions. These are really complex missions. A lot of time flying at night on NVGs. You have to be re-tanked, you know, several tanker missions to get refueled. Our men and women, young men and women in their 20s did all that. So we got the best damn military in the world by far. And China sees that, and they should be scared. They're growing, but they're, they're nothing like the U.S. military. And uh, we want the world to know that. Thank you. Um, I promise a tougher question. Here, here it comes. Vladimir Putin's uh, uh, justification primarily is about uh, the denial of the independent nationhood and sovereignty of Ukraine. Because Ukraine, as he said, share ethnic and linguistic heritage with Russia. Um, and there is no such thing called the independent sovereign Ukraine. Mm. Um, the issue about Taiwan. Taiwan, um, uh, the Chinese also use almost the exact justification. Yeah. 
So uh, they deny Taiwan has a sovereignty, has a nationhood, while in reality, most Taiwanese believe they have an independent nationhood. They identify themselves as an independent country. Uh, so there is no need for Taiwan to declare independence of a new entity, new reality, because Taiwan in reality is an independent country. So uh, uh, this was uh, keenly felt by, uh, by many Americans. So we just don't have the political courage to recognize reality. Um, a week after the uh, Russian uh, war on Ukraine, uh, former uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and I uh, uh, arrived in Taipei. Mm. So everybody was talking about Ukraine, Ukraine. And the whole issue is precisely because of that. It's so emotional because of, of the issue of sovereignty and nationhood. So um, is there any congressional will to recognize Taiwan as an independent country? Because it's not the recognition of any future independent state. It's a recognition of reality. Just like the world is defending the sovereignty and nationhood of Ukraine. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a hard question, as you, you, you signaled to me, it would be a hard question. Um, as a background on that, I think that um, when I mention this new era of authoritarian aggression, the similarities between Xi Jinping and Putin are very similar. One is they are driven by paranoia about their democratic neighbors. The other is that they're also driven by historical grievance and almost victimhood. The third is that they're working very closely together. There are no limits partnership. So people are looking at um, analogies, as you are in the question, between what's happening with regard to Ukraine and Taiwan. And I think they're very connected. As the Japanese Prime Minister, Prime Minister Kishida said, you know, and I've certainly heard from world leaders, what's going to happening, what's happening in Ukraine and the end result will be very much reflected in what might happen across the Taiwan Strait. As a matter of fact, Prime Minister Kishida called them inseparable. With regard to Taiwanese independence, that's not something that I believe Congress should be making a declaration on. I think what has kept the peace, what has been the definitive declaration of American policy that I covered in my remarks is the Taiwan Relations Act. And I think that should be the guiding light that continues to guide Congress and uh, the executive branch's approach to Taiwan. As I mentioned, there's a lot in there that talks about um, the need for peace across the Taiwan Strait and um, the ability to provide Taiwan's ability to defend itself and our ability to defend them. But I think continuing the focus where we have been with regard to the Taiwan Relations Act should be the guiding star with regard to our policy on Taiwan. All right, um, next question. What would you say to the Taiwanese, and in particular, President Tsai? How should they be preparing domestically to meet this challenge? 
Well, I think it's a really important question. And I will tell you, there are some, I've been in meetings very recently, who say the United States can't want Taiwan freedom more than the Taiwanese. Okay? We can't. They need to want it more than us. Now, there's a big question, as there was in Ukraine, um, if this horrible event that I talked about for most of the morning actually happens, will the Taiwanese fight? Will they fight? We had this question. I was in the Munich Security Conference literally on the eve of the Ukrainian invasion last year. I met with a number of parliamentarians, and I met with the now very famous mayor of Kiev, who you can't miss because he's like six foot ten and a world heavyweight boxing champion. And we were in a meeting with him, several U.S. senators, and somebody asked them, if this happens, will you fight? We need to know. He looked at all of us. He's got a very big fist. And he said, we will fight. And he pounded the table, and all the glasses went up. And OK, well, guess what? He was serious, right? I wonder if Vladimir Putin would have been in that meeting seeing this very formidable mayor of Kiev pound the table and say, we will fight literally to the death if he would have invaded. We need to make sure, and this is really important, and I work very closely with our Taiwanese friends, there's some members of the Congress who are like, I'm not sure they'll do that. Is it going to be Ukraine, which is what we want, or is it going to be Afghanistan, where the American people and the American soldiers, let's face it, were fighting a hell of a lot harder than the Afghans, for the most part. There were a lot of brave Afghans, too. I, I don't want to besmirch them. So I think that's the most important thing that they can do, is whenever there's people over, demonstrate. If there's an invasion, we'll fight to the death. Because America can't want it more than Taiwan. That won't work. Um, we will support our allies who are determined to defend their freedom and their homes. But I think that's the most important thing. And the second, of course, is getting the weapon systems and training. You know, a couple years ago, to be perfectly blunt, and I've been over there a lot, the training of the Taiwan military was not that impressive. They need to train. They need to be ready. They need to have a reserve force that can get in and fight. And so the weapon systems that they're also requesting need to be much more focused on asymmetric warfare, not the big ticket items like F-35s and tanks. It needs to be more things like harpoons and counterinsurgency capabilities. So these are all important, but I will tell, again, the will to fight, and you never know. Who knows? But I do think, and you're seeing it in Ukraine, it's one thing to invade another country. It's another thing if you're invaded and your house with your wife and kids is susceptible to brutalization from a foreign invader, I think most people will fight them. Uh, Unfortunately, we are literally running out of time because we have another major event uh, uh, coming up. So many of you uh, are planning to go there. So uh, um, hopefully this is the beginning of the uh, further engagement with Hassan. Senator, yes, thank you so much for your very insightful comments. Thank you very and, uh, much, everybody.